Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast that is now actually on the Old Testament again. (laughs) I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. And yes, as Rachel said, after a couple months of traveling in the New Testament world, we're returning home, so to speak, and we'll be back to covering the Old Testament texts for the foreseeable future. So in that spirit, let's not dally too long before we unpack the suitcases. Rachel, you're up first this week with insights into Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 for Trinity Sunday. What'd you find in your suitcase for this week, Rachel? Well, I found one of my favorite texts, Tim. And I know I said that last week. Surprise, 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 surprise. So vacation is nice if we're going to run with this metaphor, but there's nothing like coming home. Unfortunately, Trinity Sunday is one of the hardest to preach when it comes to Old Testament texts because there's just so many ditches you can fall into. So I'm going to give two suggestions. My first suggestion is that folks don't preach on the Trinity. It It never really goes well. It's a very confusing theological concept, and it's super easy to slip into heresy. So my first suggestion would be to celebrate the Trinity in the rest of the liturgy and just avoid trying to talk about it in your sermon. Hmm. If you choose that route, I'll give you some basic exegetical tips and sermon angles on how you might preach Isaiah 6. And the second idea I have will be for those who really want to preach on the Trinity, whoever you may be, and I'll give you one brief idea just to get those creative juices flowing. Sound good? All right. I'm I'm with you. Let's do it. Okay. So running with my first suggestion, which is not preaching on the Trinity, I want to start by talking about the very first line of this passage, Bishnat Mot HaMelech Uziyahu, or in the year that King Uzziah died. So the first thing I want to say is, who was King Uzziah? Okay, brief context. Mm -hmm. Uzziah ruled over Judah, which was the southern kingdom. So we're here after the split. We have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And this is before the fall of the northern kingdom. So we've got both of them there right now. Uzziah ruled for about 50 years, which is just... I know. It's pretty incredible. I mean, I know we have the queen in England who's putting everybody else to shame right now, but for an ancient time period, this is pretty impressive. Yeah, where were term limits? Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) Uzziah started reigning somewhere around 790 BCE and finished up somewhere around 740 BCE, if you're interested in dates. If you're looking for more in the Bible, check out 2 Kings 15. And that could get a little confusing because Uzziah is also called Azariah. So don't get confused there. It's the same person. But here's the funny part about what you find in 2 Kings 15. You find a small paragraph. That's because the authors of 1 and 2 Kings are absolutely hyper-focused on one and only one quality in a ruler. Did they display right worship of God, both in their household and in their kingdom? That is the only thing that the authors of these books truly care about. An Israelite or Judahite king could have sent a person to the moon, and if it didn't involve the right worship of Adonai, the author wouldn't even have mentioned it. And we see that here with King Uzziah. He was very likely one of the best political kings that Judah ever had, He ruled for about 50 peaceful years. Can you just imagine 50 years of consistency in a nation? It sounds unbelievable at this moment. 
He's mentioned in Assyrian records, which means he was significant enough to be noticed by the massive ruling power of the time. Mm-hmm. And Second and Chronicles 26, the other place that Uzziah is mentioned, talks about how he fought other nations, expanded Judah into Philistine, exacted tribute from the Ammonites, even expanded water access into the desert places. I mean, this sounds like a pretty amazing king, doesn't it? Yeah, he needs like a whole biography written just about him. Right, exactly. And he gets one paragraph. There's nothing that he does that matters to the authors of Second Kings. They're just concerned with the fact that because he didn't dismantle the worship places for other deities in Judah, he was struck with a skin disease by God. That's it. Hmm. But all those years of peace... All those years of prosperity, all of that strengthening of the nation, I kind of wonder if that was in the background of Isaiah 6. What do you mean? Well, when you take this passage just as it is, which we've tended to do on Sunday mornings, it's just kind of a lovely call story, isn't it? Like... This is how God chose to call Isaiah to be a prophet. And it's got all these interesting little cultural and linguistic details in it, like seraphim with six wings and Mm -hmm. the holy God and the hem of the robe filling the temple. And while it's really fun to dwell in those details, I've never heard a sermon that preached this text in its context. So picture a king who ruled for 50 years. Picture a king who secured the borders. Picture a king who figured out a way to get water to people living in vulnerable places. Now, picture the death of that king. If you're a member of that nation, what are you thinking? Oh, yeah. Like our whole stability has just been rocked. And who knows what's going to happen next? Exactly. What is going to happen next? It's like this collective holding of the breath. Mm Mm-hmm. And in fact, when you pan out just even a little bit, we find that that's exactly what's going on, even in the larger literary context of Isaiah itself. Chapter 5 describes the current sins of the Israelite nobility and the impending doom of a foreign invasion that is God's response to their sins. Mountains quaking, a nation far away is whistled for like a Doberman, and they come with arrows sharp, bows bent, horses swift, and roaring like a lion. And in light of this impending battle, we hear, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Gives it a different flavor to hear it in its context, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, totally. It, it like ups the stakes quite a bit. Yes. Yes, exactly. This is not just the call story of a prophet. This is a, a tumultuous moment, actually, in the lives of two nations. Because mm-hmm. King Uzziah was the king to Judah, so his death wouldn't have been quite so tumultuous to the northern kingdom, which had King Ahaz at this point. But, I mean, just invite your congregation to sit with that uncertainty for a moment. Because even if the northern kingdom hasn't lost their king, they certainly lost an ally, and they can feel the threat of the Assyrian Empire breathing down their neck. So what comes out of this collective national tension is a throne room experience of God that somehow mirrors that tension. Isaiah describes seraphs in attendance on God. And and if you're not quite sure what a seraph is, it's like the scariest angel that you could imagine. They've got (laughs) six wings, and as they fly, they use two to fly, they use two to cover their face, in this temple room anyway, and they use two to cover their feet, which is either the feet they use or 
the biblical euphemism for their genitalia. Why that might be important, you might not want to mention that in a sermon, but why that might be important is because their face and their reproductive organs are the most tender and vulnerable places on their body. And the reason they're covering those in the presence of God is because God's holiness is painful, even for angelic beings. God is so holy that it hurts. So, you know, we have that beautiful hymn, holy, holy, holy. Mm -hmm. And it really should be something like, holy, ouch, holy, ouch, holy, (laughs) ouch. Yeah. And in response to this, Isaiah says, it's got this fun little Hebrew phrase, oily, woe is me. I like that, oi, you know, we kind of say that to mean woe. It actually does mean woe in Hebrew, oi. And so, so throughout this passage, like in their historical context, the tension is building and building and building. If even angelic beings with six wings are in pain at God's holiness, what is going to happen to this puny little human? Oi! Oi, exactly. He's done for. But at this very moment, exactly when we expect disaster to strike, God shifts. God chooses instead to forgive and purify Isaiah so that he can withstand the holiness. At the very moment of disaster, God still finds a way to work for life. And I I know that this is a bit of a buildup. You have to do a little bit of like legwork to get that historical context in there. But I really think there could be a good preaching payoff there. What, What is the building tension in your parishioners' lives, in your congregation's life, in our nation's life? How might we pray for God to change the course of what seems like disaster or just to show us where in the midst of what feels like disaster, life is actually blooming out of forgiveness and out of purification? This text is about the power of the triune God to transform our lives From the fear of death to here I am, send me in an instant. From oi to heneni, if you know any of your Hebrew. (laughs) I I mean, the power of God is to burn away fear in this text. Mm, Yeah, and that's so relevant to the context of Isaiah there. I mean, in that that time of uncertainty where Mm. all of the stability, like the the rug has been pulled out from under the nation. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Isaiah needs a vision of God who's so big that like his little toe doesn't even fit in the temple, right? (laughs) Right. This is a God who is large and in charge, who is powerful and whose holiness is so hot that Hmm. the the angels can't even bear to be in God's presence. Yeah. That's the kind of God that Isaiah needed in that moment. Yeah. And, And it's a God who still deigns to work through puny humans. You know, that all of that yes. bigness of God still does not somehow overwhelm God's commitment to be involved in these humans' lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't talk about it much, but that, that little moment there where, where Isaiah says, woe is me, and he, he complains about his tongue being unclean, mm-hmm. and an angel brings mm-hmm. one of the hot coals from the altar, and tss, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but instead of burning his tongue off, it... it, it cleans, it purifies his tongue so that he can speak for God. So God is using this unclean person with unclean lips and, and bringing him into the divine purposes. Yeah. Yeah. It purifies his tongue and it burns away his fear, which is pretty incredible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So that's that's great, and and I can see a, a whole sermon developing around this. You said you had another angle too, though, something that has to do with the Trinity, maybe? Yeah, I do. It's such a puny one, though. The only thing I could find that had anything to do with the Trinity in this text is that there's this sort of triune image of God at the very beginning in the moment in the temple. There's the Lord, there's the throne, and there's the hem of his robe. That's the only thing mm. I have, friends. So my thought was... So the number could, three is in there. The number three <laughs> is three all things. I got. Yeah. I was trying to figure out like, well, would, would the spirit be the robe and Jesus be the, the throne? So the only thing I could get to was you could use this as an intro into a sermon that invites your folks to expand their images for the Trinity. It's a puny idea, friends, but it is all I got today. Yeah, we can just toss on that pile the holy, holy, holy. There's three holies. There you go. (laughs) So all members of the Trinity are holy. (laughs) I never liked preaching Trinity Sunday in the Sunday in the parish. Sorry, folks. That's my confession. Well, you know, as as Hebrew Bible scholars were disinclined to read the threeness of God into the Old Testament text. But you know, there is a venerable tradition of doing that. And um you know, who says that the original sense of the passage is the only sense that it can have? So, you know, you can you can take these these threes that are in the passage and, and run with that. And, you know, nobody's going to we're not going to come knock on your door and <laughs> there you drag go. you Preach, out into the street because of that. Preach Jesus as a throne. Jesus as a footstool. No, not a footstool. Jesus is a chair. All right. Let, let's rein it back in <laughs> and and give our stamp of approval to preaching this this text in its own context. There's, there's nothing wrong with that yeah. either. Exactly. <laughs> All right, friends, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode. If you want to check out our back episodes or subscribe to the podcast, you can do that on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. We've also got a presence on the Facebook with our Facebook page where we post all of our episodes and have room there for, you know, a little back and forth with y'all. So do give us some feedback and some comments and let us know how you're using all of this stuff. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We hope that we'll see you again next time. Until then, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy Trinity Sunday. (laughs) 